This week on the programme, we hear from two of Australia's best and brightest. We're kicking things off with the brilliant Tim Fung, CEO and founder of Airtasker, the online and mobile marketplace that's amassed a global community of almost 5 million members. Tim will tell us about his journey expanding the business internationally as demand for flexible work soars. Also ahead, Melbourne-based entrepreneur James Tutton, director of the B Corp development trailblazer Neo Metro, tells us how purpose drives his business. This is The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. You're with The Entrepreneurs. We start by welcoming Tim Fung to the show. Tim, thanks for stopping by Midori House on what I know is a whirlwind visit to London. I won't start at the very beginning of the business story. Let's talk a bit about international expansion, because you're obviously in a lot of markets now. How much of a challenge is it when you start to scale to retain the kind of ethos on which you've built the business? Is it scary? Is it fun? Uh, tell us about the, the international element of things. Scaling is always super fun, you know, mix of good and bad. I think building our big teams, you know, it's the best of things and the worst of things. When you see things that aren't working so well, you're like, oh my gosh, we've got to, you know, rein that in. I've got to create an artifact to stop that or a policy to, to change that sort of behavior. Um, but it's also honestly the absolute best of things too. There are so many things that happen as the team grows, which I literally have no part in. And so when I see this incredible work happening, I'm like, oh my gosh, like th this is like the best and, and worst of, uh, of things. In terms of scaling internationally, we're focused on the, the US and the UK at the moment. So here in London, we're pretty advanced, but we've got a very lightweight team here in the UK and, and we've been staying really lean and agile, which I think is the name of the game in the current economic climate. In LA, we're earlier stage. We've got an incredible team of four folks based in Los Angeles. But the crazy thing is that between Sydney, Los Angeles, and London, you couldn't get more inconvenient time differences. <laughs> it's literally, I think, eight hours difference between each of the, the zones. So there's like no time when we're all active and awake. Yeah, that's, it reminds me a little bit of Monocle's Global Bureau in some of those same markets. Tell me, Tim, you were saying to that point, actually, about your journey to get to London. It's not the most relaxing thing to do, we know, coming from, from Sydney. But you said, you know, born and raised in Sydney. Do you think there's a Sydney sensibility or an Aussie sensibility that's informed the way you approached Airtasker, if we do go back to the beginning, and actually in your day-to-day -day running, that agility, a bit of fearlessness, jumping from market to market. There are some cliches maybe about how Aussies travel around the world, but do you think, that, does that inform the way that you work and some of the values of the business, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a, a few things wrapped up in that. First of all, in terms of international expansion, Australia is a great test market, but if you're going to build a, a really, really large company that, that's going to have global impact, I think that, you know, you can't stay in, in Sydney forever. So an incredibly great starting point, a great way to test things. People in Sydney love to try new things. So that, that's fantastic in building a technology company. But it's, you know, I think every Aussie knows that at some point, um, if you want to go really big, you're going to go overseas. And so that was always in our plans. I think another thing that might be sort of unique about the Sydney style and culture or the Australian style and culture is we haven't had as much sort of capital pouring mm. into the market as, as you might see in the West Coast of the US or, or here in London and, and Europe. And so that's forced us to be a lot more, I guess, lean, a bit more agile, 
probably a little bit more disciplined when it comes to investment and spending and things like that. So I think um, combining a bit of the maybe U.S. ambition with the English and Australian sort of cynicism and and, <laughs> and um, need to, to really prove yourself. Well, let's talk a bit about Airtos. And it's interesting you describe it as building a tech business, but it's also what it's an it's an opportunity company. It's a company that's very engaged with the future of work. And really interesting, I guess we go back what over a decade now to the beginning, and then you've had the pandemic. This is now a conversation almost everybody has about changing working practices. Do you still say to people, look, Airtos, it's a tech company, or do you talk about it being an opportunity company or a work company. I don't know how, what, what is the sort of easiest way to make people maybe who aren't familiar, there are still some out there who aren't, with a really understanding with what Airtask is all about. A technology company from an organisational perspective. So if we look at our headcount within the, the organisation, our, our team, predominantly made up of engineers, data scientists, machine learning experts and things like that. So certainly from a, from a hiring and organisational perspective, we're a technology company. But you're totally right. When it comes to what are we to, to the community, we are genuinely a, a community company. And what I mean by that is we don't provide the services on Airtasker. We're not experts in cleaning. We're not experts in handyman. I'm probably the worst plumber, <laughs> you know, that you'll ever... I don't know. You've not seen me bit. in action, Tim. <laughs> yeah. I think it would be a close thing. It'd be a close run. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I suppose anyone who's not a plumber probably sucks at plumbing. But we are genuinely about creating a marketplace platform. And what that means is that members can post up any kind of job that they need done. Workers on our platform, we call them taskers, can fulfill that job in any way that they see fit. And this is really, really powerful because what we discovered is that so many jobs that are out there don't fit neatly into the sort of traditional categories that used to exist. And so, you know, something might come up like, hey, I want someone to help me hang up my Christmas lights. That's not really an electrician. You're probably not a carpentry expert. You're just a person who knows how to do this. And so we're really giving people that opportunity to monetize their unique skills. Our mission statement is to empower people to realize the full value of their skills. And we mm. just genuinely believe that humans are always going to be at the forefront. Every human's got unique skills that they have to offer. And we want to help people make an income from them. I alluded to this already, but to be explicit, what happened post-2020? Did that change the parameters? Did it change the sort of reality of that working system? Obviously, you talk about community, and there were challenges to retain, far less build communities, because people were restricted in their movements and so on. What I don't know, did that encourage you that actually you were completely on the right course? Did you double down on the founding values? Or did you have to pivot? I guess in practical terms you did. But in terms of the ethos and some of the guiding principles, did that drive a big change? What was What's that couple of years been like? Absolutely. We doubled down on our ethos of building a community and empowering people. And what I mean by that is that Airtasker doesn't control or like tell people exactly what to do. What we say is there's a transparency, there's accountability, there's responsibility. So everyone can see all the jobs that happen in our marketplace. You're accountable in the sense that you have an account. That's your profile. That's your personal brand. And, and people really want to maintain that. And there's responsibility. So if you do a great job on the marketplace, you're going to get fantastic ratings and reviews. That's going to help you make more money. If you don't do such a good job, that's also something that you've got to be responsible for. So during COVID, you know, I mentioned that human beings tend to be the best of things and the worst of things. So 
pre the pandemic when all of these ride sharing and food delivery and all of these things were, were kind of going off, we, we looked at that kind of jealously because we were like, oh gosh, wouldn't it be awesome if we could just sort of like control things a bit tighter, promise a five minute turnaround or like a, you know, you're going to get this thing delivered for exactly seven pounds. And we couldn't do that because our platform is very much empowering people to choose the way they want to, to do things. What was brilliant, though, was that during the pandemic, when things changed abruptly, it didn't break our community. It was a slight disruption, but immediately what started happening is that customers started asking for different kinds of jobs to be done, and workers started saying, oh, gosh, I've got to be flexible and be able to serve those needs, so I'll change the way that I work. I'll do things more remotely, or I'll do them in a a COVID-safe way with masks and, and protective equipment and things like that. We didn't have to get in there and, and tell them exactly what to do. Because we'd created that system where it was all about empowerment and responsibility, they did it for themselves. And so that turned out to be a really, really powerful part of our, our business model as well as our community. I always find it interesting when you can identify these threads that run through from concept to instigation to growth of business, things about trust and community. And on that latter point, that clearly is something of an enduring interest to you, not just with the ongoing growth of Airtask, but more broadly, you're interested in supporting entrepreneurial communities, I know, at home and and as you travel around. Is that something that you, if we dig even further back, pre-2012, you just interested in that? Or was that part of your own story? I don't know, at school or growing up or in family? Like, where, where did that interest in those kinds of entrepreneurial communities, where did that kind of come from for you? Well, it's so interesting because when you start out, you very rarely articulate things so well. You know, I was actually reflecting on it with it with some other entrepreneurs that I went on a, a conference with recently that, you know, people have these grandiose mission statements. It's not like you sort of woke up one morning and you just said, you know what? we need to elevate the world's consciousness or like we need to become the world's, um, you know, improve the GDP of the internet. Nobody does that. Every entrepreneur knows that you generally start out solving a very practical problem, you know, whether it's something like the bank feeds don't work really well. I really want to improve that. And that leads to improving the GDP of the internet. And I think it was something quite similar with Airtask. It wasn't like we woke up one day and said, hey, you know what? We need to empower people to realize the full value of their skills. We didn't start out that way. We actually started out with the problem of it's really weird that we ask our friends and family to help out with jobs when there's so many people out there who kind of want to make some money. And that was kind of the starting point. And then Airtasker grew as we learned more about the problem that we were solving. I think that fact that things don't start out in such articulate ways, but they, they turn out over time through, through growth and learning is the important thing. Well, let's talk about growth. You mentioned the markets you're particularly targeting, of course, here and in the United States. How do you and your colleagues deliver on the on the vision and on the ambition? Because it strikes me that a lot of the success thus far has been through the dexterity you've described, the nimbleness, the agility of sort of punching above your weight, etc., which a lot of the smartest entrepreneurs actually on this program often talk about those kinds of principles. But presumably you're at a point where you have to loose a bit of that control. We said trust is so important to all you do. How do you balance empowering people to drive that growth, particularly in new markets, huge potential markets like the US, for example, whilst retaining some of the the control over the principles, the ethos of the, the business? Is that a balancing act? Actually, do you find that it works quite organically? How does that... Well, is it a balancing act, I guess, is the main question. Yeah, I think it absolutely is a balancing act. And, you know, I think as a, as a leader in a company, 
it's always that balancing act between being overly directive and telling people what to do, which is something that, you know, done in totality is really, really bad. On the extreme other end, you don't want to be an absentee manager where it's sort of like anyone can do anything and, you know, we empower people. It's not really empowering people to just say, hey, do whatever you want. That's not actually empowerment. What's important is to understand what's really important. And some of those things can be seemingly really small. It's about finding that balance between what are the things that I really, really care about and I'm not going to compromise on and how am I going to drill those things home? And equally, what is not that important or what are some of the things that I actually don't think that I'm the smartest person in the world on at all and I would like to get somebody else to help me? And so I think that the best entrepreneurs and leaders can figure out what really matters. Some of those things are really, really seemingly small. I think a really good pertinent example is the one that's often quoted, you know, Steve Jobs was in the early days of the Mac, the dialogue boxes, like, you know, this back in the 80s, the dialogue boxes came up with square corners, because in software engineering terms, much easier to draw a square box than a beautiful rounded thing. And, and Steve Jobs says, I want rounded corners on the box. And the engineers look at him and say, mate, that's going to take a really long time. Why? He's like, just do it. And then they're like, why, why are we doing this? And he's like, because we're all about design aesthetic. Nobody wants a square box. They want the rounded corners. Just do it. This is really important. I think that is a good example of that thing seems small. It seems silly, but it is at its fundamental thing, a representative of Apple's design. And that turned out to be really important. Tim, we like to mix things up when we're doing our chats with uh, excellent entrepreneurs. And we like to do a sort of quick fire round Okay. Of some shorter questions. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And I guess it's helpful if it's in a broadly business context, but it could just be life advice. Uh, well, my dad used to always say, worry more about your reputation than about making money. And I think that was um, really, really important for me. Sounds like a smart man. Obviously runs in the family. Biggest mistake you made along the way. And if you want, you can expand to tell us what it taught you about moving forwards. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, when it's a biggest mistake thing, I like it when it's actually like a really brutal one. And uh, this one's pretty brutal. I think in our early days, we sent out an email to all of our staff telling them that the office hours were nine to six in a polite way because we were working, my co-founder and I, you know, seven till 10. And we're like, just do nine to six. That turned out to be the worst thing ever. And I think that it caused a huge amount of rift in our team. We had a few people leave the company because uh, that was just a, a bloody nightmare. Okay, that's pretty good. Have you enjoyed a specific stroke of luck that you can recall? I mean, all, again, all the entrepreneurs that I talk to very modestly say, well, it's it's nearly all luck, which I don't buy. But is there a particular moment when you were like, wow, that was just serendipity and look what it's done for us. Anything that stands out? Yeah. So in the last GFC, I actually moved industries from working in investment banking, where I was at the time, to working in a fashion modeling agency. And I actually went and, and did that for no money, you know, just, just pro bono because it was something I was interested in doing. It just happened to be that the owner of the agency was a very famous entrepreneur and he let me sort of go under his wing and, and do a few things together. So I think that was like an incredible stroke of luck, actually. Lucky, but also if you leave a presumably fairly lucrative career in, in banking and go and do something for nothing, that's, that's also a bit of a pun, to be fair. It's quite brave. Yeah, I think, you know, to the point you were making before about people saying that it's all luck. I don't, I don't think it's all luck. I do think you create surface area for luck, but within that surface area, some people just have a bit more of the luck and some others. So there's a bit of variance in there. If you could do it again, what would you change? And I'm not going to allow you, Tim, to say, I wouldn't send that email out that you mentioned before. <laughs> if you, what, what would you change? Is there a sort of thing that nags at you? Or do you subscribe more to that idea, actually, that 
you learn so much from things that don't go right that it's kind of almost worth it net. Yeah, I think I would, you know, I watched that movie, The Butterfly Effect, and it's too scary to think about what might happen if I had accidentally not pressed send on that email or something like that. Maybe we'd all be, you know, having three heads and, you know, <laughs> on something like that. So I, I would say I do subscribe to the to the premise that everything that happens in life, I wouldn't say happens for a reason necessarily, but it's a learning opportunity and you grow and develop and, and it makes you who you are. So no, I wouldn't change anything. And this is, a, I, I don't know, some entrepreneurs seem to find this a pleasing thing to ponder and others find it irritating. Is there a sort of secret to success? And I think we take it as a given that plenty of hard work is a sort of base requirement. But is there a, a bit of a secret, a sort of an elusive, a, a magic ingredient, Tim, in your experience? Two things. I think one is to be introspective. I think there is a correlation between people who can hear feedback or observe things and then go, oh, is that me? Maybe it's I that has to change here or I'm wrong or, you know, I'm not the smartest and things like that. So I think that's definitely correlated to success. And I think it's a really powerful one because it's a hard thing to do usually. The second thing I think, you know, and it's probably related to hard work or, or very similar, but I do feel that one of the things that has been lost a little bit in business recently is just the idea of discipline. If you say that you're going to do something, make sure that it happens. If you're going to send that email, it does matter if there are typos in it. Don't make typos, do it properly, format your documents properly. All of these things that are just discipline, they're, they're hygiene. I think when they're done at the, the highest level, it's, it's really powerful. Now, a lot of people talk about, oh, well, the smartest people in the world have succeeded not doing that. You can do that when you're super lucky if you come up with the next Facebook or the next Instagram or something like that. But for most people who need to work their butts off to, to get to where they get to, I think the discipline is really important. The devil in the detail, as so often. Tim, let's just wrap things up. What's coming up? What should we be looking out for? People who are fascinated by our task in its story. Any particular next things? Can you give us a sneak preview of something? I guess you can't give away the big trade secrets, but what's coming up in the next kind of few weeks and months? Oh, look, I think that we're sticking to the basics and just growing the community out here in the UK and, and in London in, in particular. I'm working on some fantastic brand partnerships, which I'm really excited about. Airtask being part of the community, whether it's World Pride, which is happening in Sydney or, or other types of events. Like we really want to be part of the community and lean in with it. So yeah, really excited about some of the partnerships that we're working on, but they are um, not off the press just yet. Well, keep us posted and come back and tell us more about them, Tim. An absolute delight to chat with you. Thanks for coming to talk to us. Thanks so much. Tim Fung there. You can learn more about Tim and about Airtasker. Just head to airtasker.com. You're with the entrepreneurs. Next up on the show, we have another innovative entrepreneur for you and a philanthropist who's passionate about the private sector's role in leading the charge on social impact. James Tutton is the director of Melbourne-based developer Neo Metro, a B Corp trailblazer that's changing the face of the industry. He's also the co-founder of not-for-profit organisation Smiling Minds, Australia's largest digital well-being and mental health programme. James, a warm welcome to the show. It's great to talk with you. One thing our listeners, I'm sure, will find quite striking about Neo Metro is that from the get-go, it's been all about purpose. You and your colleagues have been doing purposeful architecture, design and placemaking really since before people were talking about purpose being a thing in that context. Tell me a bit about why it's always been so important, baked, if you like, into the Neo Metro DNA. I think in a lot of ways, it's just a fundamental thing about 
caring about what one does and having a pride in what one creates and also accepting the responsibility that if you're developing real estate, you're creating something which is going to be there for a very, very long time. You know, it's not like creating a disposable fashion item which is going to sadly disappear very, very quickly. You're creating a building which has a responsibility and that's across multiple generations. And I think we just have always taken that responsibility on and have always had a view that we wanted to create things which we were proud of. And that's what we've always done. And then in recent years, there's a language which has come to actually describe that as purpose-based business. And ultimately, there's, a, I guess, a framework which has evolved, which describes what we do. And other people have started doing similar things, not just in real estate development, but, you know, it's real estate development, it's fashion, it's travel, it's it's really every product and service has participants who define their success not only in terms of dollars and cents or pounds and pennies, but define it in terms of the impact they have on, on other people and animals and the environment which we all share. Yeah. And tell me about the scalability of this approach and these solutions, because obviously you have some very deep, well-established partnerships with lots of different stakeholders, architects, local firms. Are we at an inflection point where actually we can talk about scale in a different way? Can one deliver these kinds of solutions on an even bigger scale than that? Are you excited about the possibilities that are inherent in that? I think we are definitely at a point whereby we have been doing, I think if you go back 10, 15 years, it was really quite niche. From a consumer perspective, it was a small market. And in that sense, the scale of the projects were small and the opportunity to actually scale up to projects where you're actually building out a, a precinct or developing out a precinct just weren't there. Now that has definitely changed. A great example would be a project we've done in Brunswick, in Melbourne, and we described it as a, a new urban village. And effectively, we acquired from a series of different vendors, different parcels of land and developed them all, but with shared infrastructure at a street level, a commonality in terms of the architecture, integration into rail infrastructure, integration into bike infrastructure, near parkways, etc., etc., And that's a level of scale on a real estate development with a focus on sustainability, design, placemaking, which you really couldn't have done going back 10, 15 years or so. And I, I think that so many of these things are consumer-led. I mean, it, it, you know, Australia has become, as the world has become, so much more design literate and people know a lot more and have far higher expectations. Those expectations cover design, they cover sustainability. People are, are far more cautious and demanding and aware than they have historically been. Yeah, and it strikes me as interesting. I, I know you've got some sort of frameworks for healthy building, and they focus on areas like the light, the air quality, interconnectivity of spaces. But they also touch upon things about wellness, mind and body, which are maybe different in character than the sort of preoccupations that many architects and placemakers might focus on. But tell us, I, I don't know, when you first started to incorporate those facets into the approach of the business, were there some naysayers who said, guys, you know, it's about buildings. Why are you talking about this? And have they been dragged around to your way of looking at things? It's quite early days for us in that regard. I think historically, we have 
without putting a language to it, look to incorporate into our developments elements which support well-being. And prime examples that would be airflow and the role of quality air on human well-being, light and the role of light on well-being, shared community infrastructure within apartment buildings and the impact that has on community building and therefore on people's well-being. But we just intuitively did these things. And it's really only in recent times that we've gone, oh, actually, you know what, why don't we go and globally look at the research out there and start building out a framework and a framework which we can then use to on each project we do, brief whatever elements can be put into that project through to the architect from the go-get and then quantify it and then follow it up on completion with the residents and actually start to understand in an objective and a user-based sense what the impact is on people rather than just being dependent on external research from third parties. So we're really early days on formalizing that structure. We are at a stage now where we are on projects which are coming through our pipelines where we're actually incorporating that into the briefing process with the architects and the interior designers. And that really just puts a structure around something which we've historically done, but it also ups the ante and prioritizes those. Because I think there's very much that if you can measure something, then you actually are more inclined to deliver on it. So we actually want to create that framework which is measurable and that just will result in us increasing the quality of our delivery on that. As you touched on before, that's a personal passion of mine. I mean, I took a sabbatical from Neo Metro 10 years ago to start a not-for-profit called Smiling Mind, which launched to effectively teach mindfulness meditation to young people on a digital platform. And over 10 years, that's grown to become one of the largest mental health not-for-profits in Australia and has gone beyond just teaching mindfulness. We effectively provide preventative mental health tools to young people on a digital platform. So we have an app which has a whole suite of different content on it. I've had a long-standing passion around mental health and well-being, and what we're doing at Neo Metro is, in a personal sense, a kind of coming together of things I've been very passionate about in my not-for-profit life and things which are very real and impact people's lives from a real estate development perspective, and the two kind of dovetail together. James, one thing that sort of jumps out from all of these things you're talking about, whether it's shaping or reshaping, you know, public realm with the real estate projects or positively shaping almost on a sort of public health or on a policy basis with your work with Smiling Minds, these are things that should be the responsibility of government, local and national. They're problems that require often solutions on a, on a federal level. And yet you're leading from an explicitly sort of commercial viewpoint, almost sort of philanthropic viewpoint as well. Does that sit easy with you? And actually, is it OK for the private sector to lead on these things, partly because they are capable of adopting a longer term time horizon that let's be frank and it's not only in australia we we've dabbled with this as well here in the uk politics is too short term to tackle problems that require long-term solutions is, is it should we just reconcile ourselves that actually it's fine for the private sector to be the leaders in these spaces i couldn't agree more democracy is a wonderful thing but it has its shortcomings and one of its shortcomings is that election cycles tend to focus on rather short-term strategy. But coming back specifically to that question, you know, I'm entirely comfortable with 
private enterprise taking the lead on significant social issues. And for me personally, I've always kind of held the view that if you're lucky enough to have been commercially successful, have the energy, have the relationships, there is a really an obligation to contribute back to the world. That's not just in a financial sense. It's probably more so in terms of skills and energy and the ability to, frankly, get shit done. And in a lot of ways, it's entrepreneurs who can do that in a way which people within government just can't do it. So I think private enterprise and entrepreneurs have to play a huge role in coming up with the resources and solutions and ideas around public policy, which are going to shape our world and make our world better. Well, we could certainly get behind that. James Tutton, director of Neo Metro. Thank you. And you can learn more about James and all the purpose-driven developments dreamed up at NeoMetro by heading to neometro.com.au. That's all for today's episode of The Programme. We'll be back next week and do look out for Eureka coming your way on Friday. This programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. My thanks to them both, as always. And thanks once more to my guests, Tim Fung and James Tutton. You can listen again and find out more about the entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team, email Laura. She's at lrk at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine for more better businesses. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.